Good morning. My name is John. I was going to say you could do better than that, but that was pretty good. <laughs> Honestly, that was, that was a pretty good one. Um, my name is John Allen. Uh, welcome to Risen Church. This morning we're going to be wrapping up our series in uh, the book of John uh, called Sharing Life in Christ. Uh, we've been in that series for the past few months. Um, and then though next week, I'm going to give you a little uh, foreshadowing here, um, or, or a preview I guess. Uh, next week, say next week. Next week, we are going to be starting a brand new series through the book of Colossians. Um, so I'm actually really excited about that. If you have read through the book of Colossians, it is great. I would encourage you to even do that. If you get a chance, it's not long. You can sit down. It's an, in the New Testament. It's one of um, the, Paul's letters to the early church of Colossae. Uh, and so we're going to be taking a deep dive into this amazing letter for the summer. So... Um, as we do, I want to invite you to not just join us in that uh, on Sundays, but throughout the week in summer community groups. Uh, and so the gospel community is what our community groups are designed for. So it's not just uh, about being a Bible study, right? They're about community. So they meet together, they share a meal together, um, you hang out together, do cookouts together, go to, the, go to a park, uh, go to the beach. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe tides games, right? Like, yay, that's fun. I like that. I'm a baseball guy. Okay, so, um, but again, they are intentionally designed to be postured around the word of God, though, right? And so we want to be able to uh, provide a place for you um, to even take what we talk about on Sunday and process it and digest it and rally around what the Lord is speaking and, and sharing with each heart. And so uh, we're going to be providing some little notebooks um, that, are gonna, that are specifically designed to help you get the most out of this series. And so we'll be uh, providing those at your community groups this week. Um, so you can be ready for the next series. So if you are interested in that and you want to do that, then join a community group. If you have questions about uh, what community groups are about or how to do that, you can come and see me or really anyone with a lanyard on, Pastor Dave, who is leading worship. Um, I, and also the next steps table is your like one stop. I don't want to say shop. I don't want Jesus to like flip the tables over and stuff, but um, <laughs> pastor joke. Okay. Um, so... Uh, but that is the place where you can get uh, sort of what your next steps are and get any information you need. Got it? All right. So um, this morning, as I said, we are going to wrap up our series through the book of John called Sharing Life Like Christ. And so in this series, we've been taking a look at the specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John. And so we've been looking at uh, who Jesus is and how he interacts with people uh, and then by doing that, we're able to see then how he interacts with us today, because the way he interacted with them then is the same way he interacts with us today. And so we've jumped around a little bit in the series, and so some of these interactions are a bit out of order as they're chronologically listed in the book of John, uh, but that's actually been somewhat intentional. And so uh, we're actually going to finish up this morning with... Uh, looking at an interaction between Jesus and a woman named Mary, known as Mary of Bethany. So she may be the last interaction for us, but she's definitely not the least. Uh, and so last week we looked at the interaction between Jesus and her sister, Martha. And what we saw, and what you're, well, what you're going to see this morning, is that these two sisters are extremely different. And so Jesus interacts with them very differently because they are very different people. 
And so this is something I, I, you, we see throughout this series is that Jesus meets people right where they are. Amen? And he interacts with us the way each of us needs to be interacted with. He engages our hearts in a way that we each need to be engaged with. So, like, oftentimes people can even, they see, like, you know, the way he interacts with Martha. And then they see how he interacts with Mary and go, man, that's different. So am I Martha or am I Mary? Well, you might be Mary and you might be Martha, but you also might be, like, Matilda. Right? Like, you might be another, like, Macy or something, right? Like, you might have, like, a completely different personality from either of them. So the point here is not to say, are you Mary or are you Martha? The question here is, how does Jesus, how is he speaking to you? Because he designed you and he knows you. And he knows how to speak directly to you the way you need to be spoken with, and, and even as we're going to see this morning, sometimes he speaks to us most loudly by not saying anything. So we saw last week that Martha had a tendency to miss Jesus because she was so caught up in her own head. Like a lot of us can be that way, right? She got distracted by the task at hand that she's trying to accomplish, and in the process, she missed Jesus. And so at first, it seems that Martha should be more like her sister Mary, right? Like, we see this situation, and, and, and Jesus is even, like, we see this contrast and even a bit of a comparison. That's not Jesus isn't saying, you need to be like Mary, but he is saying, and we're going to see this here this morning, he does say she has chosen the better portion. And so it almost seems like, you know, Martha's got to be more like Mary, and she's, you know, Mary seems to be so in touch with her heart, Right? But as we're going to see, the heart can be extremely deceptive. And so Mary is confronted with the paralysis of her own misplaced emotion. And so this is what Jesus, this is the struggle Jesus meets her in. He doesn't dismiss her in it. He doesn't demean her in it. He doesn't just say, stop being so emotional, Mary. That's not what he does. He actually speaks the language of her heart in a way that she needs to hear it in order to break free from that captivity and that bitterness that she's holding on to. And Jesus does it in only the way that Jesus himself can. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. It's actually a quote from a devotional booklet that was written by a missionary to Algeria. She was a British missionary to Algeria named Lilius Trotter in 1918. She wrote this little uh, devotional booklet. Um, and, and as I read you the, our, the main idea here this morning, I want you to kind of see, like, this may sound a little familiar, all right? This is what it says. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus. And look, and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus. And look, and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Now the reason this sounds a little familiar, some of you are like, I know that from somewhere. Is that a famous hymn writer named Helen Lamel or Limmel, I have no idea how you say it, um, was so struck by this sentence in this booklet that she read or, or had someone reading to her that she wrote an entire song about what God was showing her through this statement. 
And Helen had recently gone blind, which is why she had someone reading it to her. And so her husband couldn't handle all that was required of him to be the husband of a handicapped wife. And so he actually left her. So it's hard to imagine. She's gone blind. Her husband, who is supposed to be the one that cherishes her and is there in sickness and in health, has abandoned her. So it, like, imagine the sense of abandonment that she must have experienced, like how misunderstood and alone Helen would have felt. Like how unseen and unknown and isolated and literally in the dark she would have been. Like maybe some of you feel that way or have felt that way. Maybe you feel that way right now on some level. Honestly, I think most of our like deepest frustrations come from trying to get people to see and understand the way we feel. And when it seems that people just are missing you or not getting it, right? Like it, it can be very almost depressing, alone, isolating, right? Like I think we, we think sometimes that if the other person or if someone could just see my side of things, if they could just see me and how I feel, then things would be okay. Because this is often at the core of a lot of marriage issues, right? Like it's why nobody can make you feel more alone than your spouse can when it seems like they just don't get it. They just don't understand you. And so we can strive to be like, can't you just see what I'm going through and why I feel the way I feel and where I'm at here, right? Because if they don't get you, then who could? Whoever could? Like if, if, if Helen's own husband abandoned her, who could ever understand? Who could ever see her and know her? So the answer for Helen is the same answer for each of us. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus. He sees her. He saw her. He knew her. He knows her. And he understood and he understands. In a way nobody else can. He had not abandoned her, and he promised that he never would. He was there. And so when she heard this sentence in this little booklet, it resonated so deeply in her heart that she would sing it from her soul and put it in her own words, saying, and this is a quote from Helen, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We just sang this. Like she was physically blind when she wrote this. But she could see Jesus better than most. So as I, I prayed over this interaction between Mary and Bethany, uh, and Jesus, or, or Mary of Bethany and Jesus, I, I, I couldn't help but hear these words over and over and over again because I think that this is the song of Mary's life. And I pray that it would be your song too. So no matter what's happening in your life right now, no matter whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's easy or it's difficult or if it's comfortable or if it's uncomfortable, my prayer is that you would turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him and that a strange dimness would come over all that is apart from him. That doesn't mean to check out from society or the world around you. That's actually the only way you can truly check in and be of any help to this world anyway. 
And so let's do that, right? By looking at Jesus, let's do this. By looking at this, that Jesus, through his interaction with Mary of Bethany, we're going to actually look at three different exchanges between Jesus and Mary. And, and the first is in Luke 10, and then the second will be in John 11, and then the last one will be in John 12. And so as a guide for the rest of our time this morning, I want to show you three things that you're going to realize when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, okay? The first thing that you'll realize is Jesus is my portion. The second is Jesus is my passionate protector. And then thirdly, Jesus is worthy of it all. So turn with me now to Luke 10, and we'll start with verse 38. So Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. Let's look at this first exchange and this first interaction. It says this in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, say one thing, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So now, last week we looked at Martha's interaction with Jesus, right? But this morning, I want to hone in here on what's happening with Mary. Like, her sister is in what you might call a bit of an anxious tizzy, right? Like, there's, there's a lot to do, and she is stressed out. But instead of helping her sister, Mary has taken her place at Jesus' feet, even as a disciple, now, even though the pressures around her would tell her that she needed to be elsewhere doing something more important, Mary boldly takes her place among the men disciples at Christ's feet, and then she finds that it is, in fact, her place. When she finds that there is a space and a place prepared for her right there at the feet of Jesus, that there is a safe refuge where she perfectly fits and is accepted completely. Even though those around her are kind of uneasy about it, and they're kind of like, what's going on here? Right? Shouldn't you, like, your, your sister, blah, 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 like things are happening. You know, Jesus is not uneasy about it. And that's where her eyes are fixed. She's where he wants her. Nothing else matters. Even Mary's own sister is upset, and he try, she tries to get Jesus to rebuke her. But as we saw last week, that was more about Martha's issue than Mary's, right? And it didn't even seem, it doesn't seem to even phase Mary. Like, she doesn't even, she doesn't like insecurely lash out at her sister to defend herself, right? She just turns her eyes upon Jesus, and Jesus takes care of it all. Like, oftentimes we feel like we, out of our own insecurities, need to take up our own issues or, or even maybe defend other people's issues instead of looking to Jesus and trusting in him and pointing other people to Jesus, right? Like, we need to see here, Jesus vindicates Mary. Like, he covers Mary. There's just a picture here, like an eagle spreading its wings over its young 
like shielding them from the scorching desert sun. This is a biblical image. Jesus is her refuge, and he is her strength. She has only to be still before him and behold her Lord. So as, as I thought about what have been going, uh, or what would have been going on in Mary's heart in this interaction, like all these different psalms started coming to my mind, right? Almost like they were commentaries on what's happening in Mary's heart. And, and I think after all, right, it's been said that most of Scripture speaks to us, but the psalms actually speak for us, okay? Meaning like they often articulate the cry of our hearts before the Lord on our behalf, sometimes when we don't even know how to articulate it. When you look in the Psalms, it's almost like God has articulated those things going on in your heart for you, and you can just enter into this and pray it back to the Lord. For example, I think Psalm 27, 4 expresses Mary's heart here pretty well. Let's look at that. Psalm 27, verse 4, it says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or, or how about Psalm 18, 2? It says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Can't you see this is kind of, like you can see this, hear this, feel this is what's going on in Mary as she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now look back at Luke 10, 42. Look at the last verse of that passage. Jesus says, but one thing, say one thing, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So the first thing that I want you to realize when you turn your eyes upon Jesus is that Jesus is your portion. Jesus is my portion. Now the term portion is actually used throughout the Bible, um, and it's especially used in the Psalms as a reference to our inheritance as God's people, like God's family. He's talking about your heritage, your portion. You see, when Israel inherited the promised land in the Old Testament, in Joshua 18, um, God divided up the land that he had promised them, and he divided it up as an inheritance to each tribe. Each tribe got a portion of the land, okay? And so one tribe would get a particular portion in one area, and then another tribe would get a particular portion allocated to them in another area, and then each tribe that had that portion was expected to steward that land and make it fruitful, okay? But the descendants of Levi, this was a tribe of Israel, the descendants of Levi, or the Levites, were given a very different portion. They didn't inherit land or estates their heritage would be as priests. Follow me. In other words, their portion was relational. Their portion would be to dwell in the house of the Lord as mediators between God and men. In fact, that's what the word priest means. It means a mediator between God and men, right? And so this was the portion that David is actually asking for from God. He's not saying he wants to switch tribes, but he is saying, like, that's what I want. Like, he's looking at this, and he's going, man, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon your beauty and inquire in your temple, that's what the priesthood got to do. 
He desired that fellowship portion. That's what he wanted. He was the king of Israel, but he wanted to be, he was like, I don't want that as much as I want the fellowship portion. I want to know you. He wanted the love of the Father more than the stuff. He was a man after God's own heart, okay? You see this. He wanted to sit at the feet of the Lord more than anything. And the land and the title and all that stuff, it can be taken from you. In fact, all the lands of Israel were taken from them. But the heritage that remains is that of the priesthood. And that is the portion that Mary chose. And it's the portion available to us all in Christ as the priesthood of all believers, according to 1 Peter 2. This is the heritage that is, this is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Like Mary's portion is the portion of the child of promise. And that promise is not contingent on the things and the stuff of this world and all the anxieties that we attach to it. It's a relational portion. And it cannot be taken from you. Psalm 16, verse 5 through 6. It says this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see this? That's the portion. The chosen portion is the Lord himself, not this plot of land. My lines have fallen for me in good places. I'm not worried about whether this land is fertile or not. Because my portion is God himself. And yes, that applies even when things don't go the way you want. Because God uses it all to draw you closer to himself. So it's not about what you get in this world. It's about getting him. Which is our ultimate delight and our pleasure forevermore. He is our chosen portion. Jesus is the one thing that's necessary. That's what he's talking about here. And, then, and because of that, like, no power in hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand because Jesus is my portion. No matter what happens. Now, it would seem here, in light of all this, right, it would seem here that in Luke 10, Mary's kind of like untouchable. Like she's never going to lose sight of Jesus, right? That's what we see. But it's a very real threat that still remains. And it's the threat of her own heart and her own misplaced emotions. But even when her own flesh and her own heart may fail, his promise remains. Psalm 73, verse 26, puts it like this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So turn with me now to John 11. John 11, it's about a week and a half before Jesus would be crucified, okay? This is setting the scene for the second interaction with uh, Jesus and, and Mary. Mary and Martha have, have sent word at this point to Jesus for him to come quickly because their brother Lazarus, uh, whom Jesus loved, is sick. But Jesus seems to intentionally take his time to get there. In fact, we're told in verse 5 and 6 that we looked at last week that Jesus intentionally delayed in the place where he was precisely because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, where they lived, Lazarus has been dead for four full days, okay? 
Look with me at, at John 11, verse 20. It says this. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She runs to him. And we looked at that interaction last week. But Mary remained seated in the house. So we looked at the interaction with Martha last week. But I want you to notice that while Martha immediately goes to meet Jesus before he even gets there, Mary remains seated in the house. Why? Why doesn't she run to her Savior? Why? 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 Like, the, is this even the same Mary? Like, as soon as Martha gets a chance, she's there. Jesus is there. He's here. I'm where he is. But it seems that Mary is paralyzed by her own sorrow. I think Psalm 46 gives us a little insight into this. Verse 1 through 3 says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah, which means pause and pray. Like soak this in. Take this in. Think about this. And so for Mary, this is a very real time of trouble, and her refuge and strength has arrived. Martha goes there, but she doesn't go to him. It's like she doesn't want help. Like the trauma of watching her brother die would have felt like the earth giving way. The mountains of stability and strength that he would have represented to her were moved into the heart of, sea, of the sea, or maybe even Sheol, which is actually a representation of death. And Mary was left here drowning in these chaotic seas of her own emotions. And for a moment here, she chooses to allow those troubles and those waters to overwhelm her. Instead of standing and running to Jesus, she wallows in her own sorrow. Look at Psalm 73, verse 21. It says this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And I think that some of what's happening here with Mary. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information here, but this is, I, it, I, maybe there's some speculation going on here, but I think it's pretty accurate. And yet, Jesus has promised that the good portion, he promised her, the good portion that she chose will not be taken from her. And so with a word, he reaches out to her. Look at John 11, verse 28. So Martha's talking with Jesus, and this is the end of that interaction. She says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, because Jesus' sheep hear his voice, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. It's his call that snaps her out of it, right? Jesus beckons her to resist her flesh and rise and come to him, and she heeds his voice, and rather than the emotions that would paralyze her in bitterness, she leans into the word of God. It's like she got just enough from it to get there, and then she falls to the ground at his feet. But when she does... She's back in the space and the place where she belongs at the feet of Jesus. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And some of you need to hear this today. You need to hear that Jesus is calling for you to come to him. He's calling you to, to deny your flesh in the darkness and stand up out of that bitterness and come to him. Even if it's all you've got is just enough to get to him and fall at his feet, that's what he's calling you to do. And he's, he's empowering you with his very word to do it. Again, look at Psalm 73. It gives us a little insight here, I think. Okay? Again, Psalm 73, verse 21. Go there with me. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Like, I feel like Mary of Bethany could have written that psalm. She didn't, because it was written way before she was born, but I think it reflects her heart. And I think it reflects many of our hearts in here. Like, even in her anguish, even in the darkest moment of her soul, she heeds his call to come. She places her brutish and embittered emotions under the dominion of Christ's word, and she runs to Jesus. She's still struggling with the confusion. She's still dealing with the emotions, but this time she places those emotions at the feet of Jesus along with her entire being, right? And she doesn't understand. She's grieving. She's upset. She's confused. But here at the feet of Jesus, she's finally in a place where she can actually do it all well. She can grieve well. There's solace for her here. There's refuge for her here. There's safety and there's security for her at the feet of Jesus. Even in the safety, that, like, the safety to process and accept everything that's taking place, that's where she is. Apart from Jesus, though, her soul not only grieves the loss of her brother, but is also grieving the distance that the one her brother's love is designed to point her to. Like, the distance between her and Jesus, everything her, the love between her and her brother was designed to point her to is the, the presence and the goodness of God. But when she's apart from Jesus, she's not just grieving her brother's loss and her brother's death, she's grieving the distance that she has held on to between her and Jesus. Like Mary's bitter indulgence has caused her to grieve wrongly, to grieve bitterly as one with no hope. It's caused her to soul to not only grieve the presence of her brother, but also her Savior. Look at Psalm 42, verse 1 through 3. I think it gives us a little more insight into what it's like on our souls when we do this, or when we experience this stuff, okay? It says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Who is the they for Mary? It's her own heart. Where were you? Where are you? Maybe there are even other people around her. Maybe there's bitter people going, where is the Savior you keep talking about? For a brief moment, Mary allowed, I think, those misplaced emotions to take hold as she sat in the house of resentment drinking those bitter waters. But Jesus called her, and she stood up. It was an act of faith. It was a rejection of her flesh and a faithful obedience to the word of her Savior King. And though her questions remain, she's at least home in his presence at his feet. The waters are no longer bitter. She's now in the presence of the one who provides the living water that can restore her soul. Psalm 142, verse 5 says this, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Not just one day when we die, but now. Because in him and at his feet is life because he is the resurrection and he is life. And so she says the same thing her sister said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And it's clear that these sisters have been wondering and asking and crying out the same thing, even maybe even talking about this, like, where's Jesus? Maybe they're, they're going, saying to each other, where is he? And then here now, she's saying, Jesus, where were you? And so the only difference, though, between Mary and what Mary said to Jesus and what Martha said that we looked at last week was that Martha followed her grievance with a declaration of faith saying but even now I know that whatever you ask from God God will give you so Martha's logic kicked in and her uh, and, and she took her thoughts captive to what she knew was true and that's actually where Jesus met her Mary on the other hand just continues to cry there's still a good bit of emotional bondage clouding her vision of Jesus. Even though she's at his feet, she's still struggling here. It's not an excuse, but Jesus, to see the mercy of God, Jesus meets her there as well. And he begins to speak the language of Mary's heart. He doesn't just tell her that he is the, her protector and the lover of her soul. He doesn't just say it. He shows her. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he said, quit crying. Suck it up. You think I don't know what I'm doing? That's not what he says. Not at all. This is when he saw them weeping, when he saw her weeping, and when he saw everyone else weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. And I don't think, I think they missed this a little bit. I don't think it's just how much he loved Lazarus. I think it's how much he loved them all. Like, don't, this is so often what our souls need in these times of grief and trouble. Like we tend to think that all we need is for God to fix the situation at hand, but our hearts are often way more complicated than that. 
Like, we think that all we need here is a resurrection, right? Like, that's all we need, just a resurrection. Just fix it, God. That's why when people experience, like, a real trauma, it's not always enough to just say everything's okay now, right? Like, it's good to say that, remind people of that reality, but it's not always enough to say, hey, Lazarus isn't dead anymore. Get over it. You know why? Because the truth is, he died, and it was horrible, the truth is that you did, in fact, experience that soul-crushing anguish. And the truth is that your pain was and is very real. And your heart's not designed for it. Jesus knows this. Even though it may seem irrational, the thing about emotions is, like it or not, like, they're not always very rational. Right? And so even though the resurrection is coming, the pain is real. And so Jesus doesn't dismiss that reality. He doesn't stand at a distance like these poor mortals are so limited. Right? He enters in. He enters into it. He mourns with those who mourn and he weeps with those who weep. He enters in. He's not stoic. He's not detached. He's not an unemotional God. He knows that everything's going to be okay. He knows the resurrection's coming. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's not unmoved by the pain of it all. In fact, it says he's deeply moved in his spirit. It says he's greatly troubled, and it says he wept. Jesus wept. God in the flesh wept. This is completely antithetical to anything in almost every other religion. This is, God is supposed to be detached and unemotional and enlightened. But Jesus weeps. Like we're presented here with a show of emotion that would have been honestly both terrifying and comforting at the same time. Like, it's not just one emotion. I want you to see this. The reason that there are, like, multiple kind of emotive descriptions here is because emotions aren't simple. Right? Like, Jesus demonstrates multiple waves and layers of emotion that seem to just compound upon one another. And hear this, none of it's sinful. And none of it's out of his control. Like, he's sad, and he's weeping with those who weep, but there's also this strong sense of, like, anger happening. In fact, many theologians point out that the phrases used here in the original language alludes to a sense of extreme intimidation of purpose. Like he's, this, there's like a sense where his soul is just stirred up like a war horse going to battle, right? Like his enemy is death itself and he's had enough. Don't forget that this is only about a week and some change before Jesus would demonstrate his love for us all by conquering death and the grave entirely at the cross. This is his mission. He's on the war path. Don't forget that here we see Jesus demonstrating his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, not as one who is cold and unaffected, but as a passionate protector whose love is full of this emotion and so much emotion that it breaks open the grave itself because of his love. That's what we see here, and you need to see it. You need to see it. 
because it speaks to the places in our heart that need that passionate protector, which is the second thing that you need to realize or that you will realize when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, that Jesus is my passionate protector. And this isn't just for women, guys. You need to know that you're not the only one that has to fend for yourself. You have a passionate protector. Some of you, 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 you know, you're bitter towards God because you think he doesn't care about the pain you've experienced. You think he's just up there in the clouds, like, hanging out with the angels while you suffer down here alone. So maybe you resent him for it. You need to know that nobody is more upset than he is. You need to see this. You ever seen the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington? You know what I'm talking about? It's an old movie from like 03, I think. It, it's, it's basically the story of a guy who, who really loves this little girl, but the girl gets kidnapped, and Denzel's character basically kills everybody involved with the kidnapping. And it is ruthless. It's like a brutal onslaught. Like it, 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 and yet, it shows how much he loves and values this little girl. Right? And so finally, the entire crime organization is like, please stop killing us and we'll give you the girl back, right? But only if you trade your life for hers. So spoiler alert, the movie ends with this powerful scene where Denzel char- Denzel's character is walking up a bridge to make this trade. Like he's bloody from battle, he's been shot, and he walks up, it's intentionally, he's walking up this bridge, almost like he's walking up a hill. And he stops at the top of this bridge, and there's this clear image of Jesus carrying the cross to the top of Calvary. Like, I don't know if the director or screenwriters meant to do it, but it's there. Whether they meant for it to be or not, it's there. It doesn't matter. And when they see him, when the enemy sees him, they release the little girl who then runs to her savior and passionate protector who is joyfully giving his life for hers. And he embraces her. And then he tells her, it's time to go home. And then she says, where are you going? And he says, I'm going home too. Guys, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the entire reason movies like this resonate so heavily with us is because it speaks to the redemptive narrative that we're all immersed in. This is creation. This is what's going on. Like this is the gospel. I mean, the gospel can be distilled down into four simple words. Jesus in my place. Like, this is what the cross and resurrection is all about. Like, that's what this passage shows us. Jesus is speaking to Mary's heart, and he's speaking her language. She's not alone. She's not abandoned. She's seen, and she's known, and she's heard, and she's loved, and she's passionately protected. There's security that comes from that. He will rescue, and he will redeem, and he will vindicate. He is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. He is the one who covers his church, and he tells death itself to back off. This is Jesus. And so he's calling us to turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him, and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And so more than anything... Mary needed to experience Jesus as her refuge and strength. She needed to know she wasn't alone. She needed to know that Jesus sees her and knows her and was willing to fight for her and even lay down his life for her. She needs this stuff, and so do you. 
She needed to know that God isn't upset with her. He's upset alongside her. And he communicates it all in a way that was deeper than words. Jesus speaks her heart language and he speaks it perfectly. And he communicates the love of the father by demonstrating that it's not okay to mess with daddy's daughter. This is what he declares over his church. This is what he declares over his bride. This is what he declares over his sons and daughters. You know, one of the worst things that a father can do to their child is to ever, uh, if their child's ever mistreated or abused, is to ignore it. Or worse yet, even blame the child. Like they're just experienced a devaluing of their life. And even if they put themselves in an unwise position, which can hurt a father's heart, it hurts our father's heart when we do unwise things, right? What we need and what they need is to experience your father's anger, not at them, but over them and for them, alongside them, because you love them. Like this is who Jesus is and this is what he does. Jesus is demonstrating to Mary that he is her passionate protector. This is part of what it means to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to turn your eyes upon the one who declares vengeance is mine and I will repay. To look at the one who proclaims and demonstrates ultimate value over you so you don't need to insecurely try to fend for yourself. And you can leave it to God and live in this freedom. Look at verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So you, you can hear this bitter accusation here. Like he's either unable or he's uncaring. Either way, it's too late, right? That's what the, 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 some of the people in the crowd, like some are saying, wow, look how much you loved him. And then some are being like, yeah, I'm not convinced. I'm pretty sure I'm a better Messiah than him, right? It's the accusation that Jesus isn't good. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Another emotive statement here. Highly emotive. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, I I don't think he's just moved with compassion here for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I think there's a lot going on. Again, I think there's so much going on in him. I think a good bit of his response here is the accusation of this bitter crowd, right? I think some of that's what's stirring him up. Now, you need to understand, like, this is, after all, the reason why we're in the sinful state that we're in to begin with. That sense of, like, you know, I could do this better than God, right? Like, the wage of sin is death. The reason death and tombs are a thing in this world is because humanity questioned God's goodness and thought we were better at being God than God. This is essentially what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? This is the gospel. (laughs) Like, this is the whole thing. And yet he's so good, he's not content to leave us there. Look back to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I've heard some commentators say that he had to say Lazarus' name, otherwise every dead person on earth would get up and come out of the grave. (laughs) The man who died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So I want you to see this. Jesus doesn't just protect Mary from others, he protects her from herself. He reminds her that he is her refuge and passionate protector, even from her own heart. He reminds her that she's not alone, that he sees her and he knows her and he loves her, which then allows her to see Jesus with a lot of clarity for who he actually is. She's then able to see him in a way that even the other disciples seem to miss, which leads me to the final thing that I want you to realize or that you will realize when you turn your eyes upon Jesus. Last thing, Jesus is worthy of it all. John 12 Look at verse 1. We're going to close with this final interaction between Mary and Jesus. It says six days, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So kind of summing up what just happened. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. <laughs> Lazarus is one of those reclining at the table. Like visualize this. Like, there's, it's, it's kind of a, a scene that really feels like kind of like a happily ever after scenario, right? Like, Lazarus is back. Everybody's feasting and fellowshipping with Jesus. Everything seems right in the world. Where's Mary? Right? Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with this fragrance of the perfume. Now, if this seems a bit strange, it's because it is. Like, this is weird. It's supposed to be weird. Like, they would have been reclining around this table. Like, they probably would have been on pillows. Like, the way that they sat was with their, their feet would have been out like this, and they would have kind of been face-to-face around this table, kind of fellowshipping and eating. And then, um, you know, they're in this, like, moment of fellowship and happily ever after, and then it seems to get interrupted when Crazy Mary bursts in inappropriately and starts ex- like pouring out expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. That's a little different, okay? Like, read the room, Mary. Come on. (laughs) But she is reading the room. Better than anybody. She's not concerned about anything else but what she sees and what she knows because she's been seen and she is known by Jesus. So she now sees him in a way that everybody else seems to be missing. The eyes of her soul have been turned fully upon Jesus. And the truth is that Mary's doing the most appropriate thing in the room. Remember, they're only six days away from Passover. Passover is when he was crucified. Mary seems to realize here before any of them that Jesus was in fact who he said he was and he would do, in fact, what he said he would do. He is, as John the Baptist declared him to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and Passover was just six days away, which is when the lambs are slaughtered. And so while the other disciples seem to look past this reality, Mary embraces it and she embraces Jesus and she does it in a show of extravagant worship. This isn't a spontaneous act of foolishness. This is a woman who has counted the cost. She's even measured in it, and she recognizes that Jesus is worthy of it all. It's a direct response of what he's done for her, 
and who he is to her. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, the guy that sold him for the silver, sold him out, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And that would have represented, 300 denarii would have represented about a year's wages at the time, okay? That's a whole lot of money, okay? It's a very, this is an extravagantly expensive perfume bottle, and the way that, like, you would have to, you couldn't just open, unscrew the jar and then screw it back on. You had to break it in order to use it. Does that make sense? So this seems, to him, wasteful. Verse 6. Or you had to at least use it within the next week or so. Verse 6. He said this is, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Something tells me John didn't really like Judas very much. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to add this little extra in here so you get some insight into some of the stuff I saw on the side. It's like, should have saw this coming. Anyway, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. There's that protector again. He's speaking to her soul. He doesn't stop. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. A little cryptic there. What's that about? For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. For all the other disciples, they're like, what's he talking about? I don't know. Pass the butter or whatever. But she's getting it. She sees him. And Jesus passionately protects Mary. Jesus is her strength. She has only to behold him, to trust him, to look to him. He vindicates her before Martha. He vindicates her before Judas and the other disciples. And he even vindicates her from herself. She doesn't need to explain herself or be understood by everybody around her. Jesus sees her, and he knows her, and he understands her, and that is more than enough for her. And it's because he is more than enough for her that her heart is prompted to lavish this perfume on him in this show of such extravagant worship. You see, while the other disciples, though, are concerned that this perfume was so valuable, Mary's likely only concerned that it's not valuable enough, right? But it's what she's got. It's what she has to bring to him, and he's worthy of it all. For from him are all things, and to him are all things. And therefore, therefore, he deserves the glory. We know from other gospels that she actually had to break open the jar to do this. And if she didn't use the perfume within the next few days, it would be ruined. Like This is why Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She's anointed the feet that would carry him to the cross, but within the next few weeks, or within the next week, sorry, they would use this anointment, or anoint, they would use this oil <laughs> or perfume to anoint his body just before his resurrection. We read about this a few weeks ago. So this level of seeing and knowing Jesus is available to us all. I want you to get this clarity, but that clarity comes first and foremost by acknowledging and realizing that he sees you and he knows you, and he's calling you to turn your eyes upon him. This is not reckless spontaneity. Mary sees and knows the value of the one whom she has been seen by and known by. It's not foolish 
acts done to get a rise out of people around her and be like, I'm so crazy and I'm going to mess with your, like a lot of people do, sometimes we do that and we just kind of try and get a rise out of people and be like, I'm just trying to stir up the religious people and the stiff whatevers. Quit worrying about them. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't ask what you can get away with. You ask what brings him the most glory when you realize that he's worthy of it all. And you don't hold anything back. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Let's pray.